Welcome to part two of our NEC Now podcast with Robert Morris men's basketball coach Andy Toole. In part one, we covered his arrival in Moon Township in 2007 and his three years as an assistant coach that culminated with back-to-back NEC titles in 2009 and 2010. In part two, we pick it up in the spring of 2010 when Andy is named the nation's youngest men's basketball coach. Enjoy. After that game, Mike moves on to Rutgers, and you get the call, uh, 29 years old, youngest coach in the country. Looking back, now you've done it for a decade, how hard was it to make that move, that one spot down the bench? Uh, it, was, it was incredibly hard. And, and it, I, I tell people all the time, I don't care if you're 29, 39, or 49, you're never really ready. And I remember one of our first team practices, we're all in the huddle. And we broke to go to, to do stretching. And Russell Johnson's still standing there as I'm still standing there. And um, I said, Russ, what are you doing? And he just says, holy, you're the head coach. And we both started to laugh, and he ran off to go stretch. Um, and so it was. It was a different deal. Um, but, you know, a lot of those guys, you know, went to bat for me. Um, they, they, a lot of them you know, uh, went to the administration and explained that they would want me to be the head coach and, and the guy leading the program. And, you know, that group, Velton and, and Russell and um, Karan Williams and, you know, those guys, you know, I, I feel in a lot of ways I kind of grew up with those guys because, you know, they were sophomores that year. Um, I was a first-year head coach. And, you know, we were just trying to figure it all out on the fly and see what we could accomplish. And, um, you know, the year started off, you know, uh, up and down. Uh, again, a bunch of new guys trying to figure it out. We had a roster that was virtually all freshmen and sophomores. Gary Wallace was our only senior. Uh, I think we had one senior, one junior. Everybody else was a freshman and sophomore. And so the inexperience was crazy. But, you know, Gary and, and, and Russell and Velton and Karan and some of those guys, Elijah Thompson, some of those guys that were, you know, had some experience, they really stepped up as the year went on. And, you know, we were able to find our footing. Yeah, you got, it was up and down to start. You get real, you get red hot down the stretch. You wind up going to the semis. You're back at uh, Quinnipiac again. And this play is like seared in my brain. 13 seconds left. Belton with the ball. Elijah sets the screen. Ruddy hedges. And then Belton beats him, you know, into the lane and hits a, like his signature floater. Um, game over. You win again at Quinnipiac. Did you as a coach, uh, both as an assistant and then, you know, as Velt moved on to his next year, did you just have the confidence with him right from the jump that you put the ball in his hands and something good's going to happen? You know, obviously, um, you know, I recruited Velton and, and in high school he had made, you know, clutch plays and, you know, had that kind of winning mentality. Um, but really, you know, Karan Abraham, that, that my first year as a head coach, he was our leading scorer and, and he went down, we were played at Monmouth and he went down with Achilles injury towards Achilles. And, from that day forward, I think Velton really kind of stepped forward and, and assumed some of that leadership stuff, uh, assumed some of that late game dramatics. Um, the team really started to kind of take on his personality. And like you said, we got hot down the stretch. Uh, I remember going to that Quinnipiac game and I, again, sometimes I question the marketing people in the world and, and you talk about bulletin board material, but they had put out on their website um, a, a, a video montage of the championship game the year before and it was all these highlights from the game and student reaction of like you know uh dejected students leaving the building and then they flash across the screen not this year i think i remember this (laughs) and after after the not this year 
they broke into the chant, I believe that we will win. And that was like in a minute and a half promo for the game. We probably showed our team that promo 15 times in the 48 hours between our, our conference semi, uh, quarterfinal and that semifinal game. And our guys were so jacked up to play that game. Our guys were so excited to be in that game. They played incredibly hard as, as all the NEC tournament games, you know, are played with great intensity and energy. Uh, and when Velton hit that shot, I mean, Tom Moore, I think just, you know, the, the air was, was sucked out of him. Um, and, and for me, you know, as a, as a first year head coach, you know, that win, I think I, I, I started to feel a little bit more comfortable kind of just in my own skin, trusting my gut, trusting my instinct, um, you know, managing the game, the substitutions, all that stuff. You know, that was a really pivotal game for me because those guys believed in our plan. They went out and executed our plan um, and we were able to, to win and move on to play LIU in the championship. So it's the start. You, you go to LIU. It's the start of their run with Boyd Malasawir. Um, great game. Like, that may be the, one of the best, if not the best, championship game as far as high-level play in that game. I think you came back from about eight down with a couple minutes to go. Russell Johnson ties it. You go to overtime. You come up short in that game. But the season comes um, – you know, your, your NEC season there comes to an end. What did you learn that year from the start – of the season, your first as a head coach to the end? Oh, man. I mean, so much. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. I mean, I think guys that are, you know, wanting to be head coaches, you know, you, you go through that first season. Exhaustion's not even the word, you know, when, it, when it's over. Um, just, just the mental exhaustion from the year. You know, everything you're saying, every practice you're planning, every pregame speech, every postgame speech, you're replaying it all in your mind. I mean, I remember driving to and from, you know, work each day and saying, okay, you know, what are the important messages that I got to get across today? And then on the way home, did I get them across? Did they understand it? I mean, you're just, you're constantly evaluating every decision you make. Uh, you're pouring over film, you're pouring over opponents film because, you know, you just, you want to make sure that you're, you're gaining as much information as you can. And, you know, there's probably a balance to that, right? You probably can overdo it. And I think as you, you know, get further along in your head coaching career, you know, you, you understand some of the ebbs and flows a little bit better. But, you know, as in your first year, you know, you feel completely exposed. You know, you make a basket, you think you're going to have the greatest team in the world. Uh, you turn it over, you think you're getting fired tomorrow. I mean, it's just like the, the emotional roller coaster of that first year is so hard. Uh, and even your first couple of years, you know, because you got to have some of those experiences. you got to feel some of those things. And now, you know, you now, now 10 years in, sometimes you can say, okay, you know, let's, you know, take a deep breath and, you know, we'll come back to get them tomorrow. Um, but that championship game was, was an amazing one. Um, you know, we were down eight, nine points. They went zone late in the game. It was something Coach Ferry would do late in games where he would have a lead and then go zone. And it actually allowed us to get back in the game. I remember Karan Williams hitting a three-pointer right in front of our bench. You know, and, and we knew they were going to go zone. And so we had practice for it. We had planned for it. And we were able to kind of fl flow right in the zone offense. We executed really well, and that got us, got us back. Um, you know, there's, you know, a play that just sticks out of my mind. There was a, a, a loose ball on a, on a baseline, on a rebound, uh, late in that game, we were down one and, uh, you know, everybody went for it. There was a huge jumble and they were given the ball. I, I still haven't seen the play. I would like to go back and watch the play and see which we had <laughs> back then or the two minute challenge. Cause my, from my vantage point, I still believe in my mind that it could have been our ball and, you know, we would have had the ball with under 10 seconds and, you know, a chance to win the, the, the NEC championship. 
uh, we ended up, they ended up getting the ball LIU and uh, we ended up fouling down three and, you know, ran a decent play and kind of got Russell a decent look that didn't go in. But uh, again, you know, as a coach, sometimes like that, that group uh, gave everything they could to that season. And, and those are the things that you just, you're so proud of as a coach, because, you know, you know, there wasn't one more thing that those guys could have done in order to um, put us in a better position or give us a better chance to win. And sometimes it just doesn't go your way. I, let's move on to the next season, 11-12. Uh, and just talk about the NEC for a second. I, I think that might have been like our zenith at that point. Well, we had, uh, three ranked in the top 100 that year. We had Wagner with Latif Rivers and John Williams. We had you guys, we had LIU, and Quinnipiac was still strong. Um, when you look back to that period in those games, like how hard was it for you as a coach to game plan? You didn't like, there were no nights off against these, these top teams. We were so top heavy. I mean, there, there really isn't nights off um, very much in, in, in league play anywhere. And um, you know, you know, Wagner and LIU were, you know, extremely high level. Um, Quinnipiac was, was very strong. You know, and so you just knew. I mean, you knew those teams were teams you were going to have to see at some point or another if you were going to try and, you know, win a championship. And, um, you know, it was funny. I think we were, we might have been 14-4 and four that year in conference play and, and came in third place. You know, LIU, I think, was 16-2. and two, And I think um, Wagner was just ahead of us with three losses. And, um, you know, some of the, you could, you could start to see it brewing with some of the non-conference, right? I mean, some of the games that, that, our teams had played against non-conference opponents. You knew that they were for real. Uh, you knew they were playing challenging teams. I remember Wagner losing to uh, CJ McCollum's LIU team by one point at home. And you just said to yourself, like, okay, these guys are, are legit. You know, and this was, you know, Danny's second year and uh, they had made dramatic improvements in his first. And so we knew that they were going to be a real player. And obviously we knew what LIU had back um, as well as, you know, Quinnipiac's toughness as always. So, you know, we knew it was going to be, you know, some big time play down the stretch. And uh, we went into Wagner in that semifinal and, you know, played another classic game. You know, uh, I remember Velton Jones telling me before the day before that game, you know, coach, we're not, we're not losing. And uh, he, he had a look in his eyes and a, and a, and a will about him that was, uh, you know, incredibly strong uh, at our shoot around the day before lucky Jones got run into on a, on a crazy play and, and hurt his knee. And so I was, um, you know, about to lose my mind, but he was able to, you know, kind of come back and, you know, really help us in that game. And, uh, you know, Velton, I think, got Kenny Ortiz to bite on a, on a shot fake, you know, down the stretch of that game and got fouled on a three that allowed us to, you know, really, you know, fully take advantage of, of the game and win it. That 2011-12 uh, season, it, it ends again at LIU, but you wind up making a nice postseason run in the, uh, in the CIT. Uh, you beat Toledo and Indiana State. Um, I know it's not the NCAA. You've always been an advocate of playing in the postseason. Um, how hard is it to get your guys refocused if you don't win the conference tournament for the, for the next postseason? It takes some time. You know, it, it takes some time because there is, you know, all the buildup is towards that conference tournament championship. You know, when we went into LIU and, uh, you know, they, their offense was so high-powered. You know, Velton got hurt, you know, probably broke a rib early in that game, kind of get knocked to the ground on a, on, a, on a breakaway. And, you know, it was never the same. And we kind of were lost in that game because of it. You know, we kind of had lost our way. Um, we ended up playing LIU's game where it was just, you know, a race. And, and they were better at it, much better at it than we were. And so we couldn't really control the game. 
Um, and there was a lot of, you know, I remember riding back on the bus the next morning and, you know, guys are just somber, you know, they're just really somber. And I think, you know, that group was, it was another young group, you know, juniors kind of being the core of our team. Um, you know, some, some good underclassmen that were a part of that team. And we were able to convince them to try and get the first postseason win in Robert Morris history in, you know, 30 years, um, you know, 1983, Robert Morris won a first round NCAA tournament game against Georgia Southern. And that kind of became our rallying cry. You know, can we go and experience, you know, a win in March, uh, a postseason tournament win? And we went out to Indiana State. We were down at the half. And, you know, I came in the locker room at halftime. And, you know, I just said to the guys, if, if we don't want to play the right way, we, we can just go home right now. And, you know, guys started to really chirp up and, you know, say, let's, let's win the game. We're here. We might as well try and win it. And in the second half, we played, you know, tremendously well. Uh, got the win. Guys were really excited getting that win. Uh, and then we went to Toledo on St. Patrick's Day and, you know, we just, we jumped them. Uh, I don't know if they were overly excited to be there or not, uh, but I know our guys were. And they came out and we got on them early and the, the energy just kind of stayed with us all night. And we guarded like crazy. We made shots, we executed. Uh, and then we played Fairfield, I believe, which was in the quarterfinal. Rakim Sanders was on that team and you know, Sidney Johnson was the coach and, and they just kind of beat us up physically. You know, they posted Rakeem Sanders and uh, there was no answer for him. But, you know, it was a, a, another 26 win season. And, you know, I think these guys, I think it, it really paid dividends for us, you know, in the next few years as we got into you know, NITs and NCAAs um, because guys had experienced what it was like to win games in March. Let's move on to the 12-13 season. One of the things that I think went under the radar that year is you, that year you completed a four-game sweep of Ohio U. This is always amazing to me. They made the Sweet 16 one of those years. They won an NCAA game the other years. I think they won over 90 games over those four seasons. That's really hard to do. That team was high level. Um, how satisfying is doing something like that? And then also things like, you know, beating Quinnipiac, Duquesne, seven out of eight times. Like how satisfying is that to you as a coach? Well, it's, it's great for our guys and for the, the, the reputation of our program, you know, and it, and it was something that our, you know, our, our players, th those are the guys that really, you know, locked in for those games. I remember the first year we beat uh, Ohio U, DJ Cooper, who, you know, obviously is a, a great mid-major player, had an unbelievable career at, at Ohio U. Uh, he got called for a, a tough push-off foul uh, late in the game at our place. And then uh, that was Coach Rice's last year. And then the next two years, we had to go back to Ohio U. And we won a double overtime game down there where we had 31 turnovers. It was, it was a complete, you know, chaos. But somehow we were able to figure it out. And um, when they came back to us that year, that was Carvel Anderson's game. It was kind of his coming out party. He was 10 for 10 in that game, 8 for 8 from 3. Um, and, and they didn't really have a chance. You know, we just we, – we just, those guys were so – uh, jacked up. And, and again, it goes back to some of your leadership. I know uh, one of the first years and some of the stuff that happens that you find out later as a coach is always interesting that um, the first year we played them, Velton Jones was a redshirt freshman. DJ Cooper was a freshman. And DJ Cooper had some choice words for Velton during that early in that game uh, about how he wasn't a good player and, you know, it wasn't, you know, very high on their scouting report and you know, some of those things that, you know, if anyone's watched the Last Dance documentary or Michael Jordan has a grudge and took things personally uh, against every single person he's ever encountered, you know, Velton had a little bit of that in him, you know, and, and I think each year, you know, he made sure the practices leading up to that Ohio U game, he made sure guys were ready to go. 
he came with another level of energy and focus. And, you know, when he did that, that a lot of times meant trouble for our opponent. And uh, those were huge wins for us to be able to get. And again, ways to kind of continue to build the reputation of our program. When you do, when you do something like that, like sweeping them four in a row, does it make it that much harder for you to schedule these type of games? Yeah, scheduling has always been a challenge for us. You know, geographically, it's been a challenge. And then, you know, because we've had some success, you know, there's been, you know, a number of times, even in games that are guaranteed games where we'll say, a guy will say to us, hey, listen, you guys play too hard. We don't, we'd rather play somebody else, you know. Um, and, and so you, you always got to face those battles. Um, and the Ohio U was a prime example. I mean, there were some teams in our league that they were paying guarantees to while we were playing a, a four-year home and home against them, um, you know, and, and being successful. And so, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't help when the next year rolls around and people in, in the mid-American or leagues like that are looking to figure out who they're going to play. Sometimes they're not excited to hear your call. In 12-13, you, you mentioned Carvel was added to the team. You have Velton, you have Karan, you have Mike McFadden, uh, Russell. Velton's hobbled that year. He has a, a shoulder injury, um, not himself for much of the year. And I want to talk about Velton again for a second. You know, every year or so, we, we, we play that feature we did on him where, and I'm going to quote you here, you say he's a pit bull. He's so hard-headed and stubborn. Once he gets something in his brain, he can almost will things to happen. Um, when you hear that now, like, what does it take you back to when in coaching Velton? Um, just how much fun it was to coach all those guys, really. Uh, and again, I talked about, you know, I feel like in a lot of ways as a coach, I grew up with those guys and as they were growing up and, you know, there were some battles, you know, uh, whether it was Velton, Russell, Lucky, um, there were times where you're, you're battling those guys to, to compete the way you need them to compete. Uh, to compete the way you know they want to compete and the way they're capable of and um you know but v had another gear you know he he had a, he had an ability to kind of you know raise raise his level I, I remember my um i guess it was my second year as the head coach we, we used to scrimmage niagara every year in erie when joe mahalik was the coach and they were absolute bloodbaths they were i mean two and a half hours of scratching clawing grabbing fouling uh holding and um we were really lethargic as we kind of came out of that game. And again, every year it almost seems like guys have to remember how hard you have to play in order to be a good team. And the year prior, we had beaten Niagara pretty good. And, you know, they, they came and they jumped us. They were all over us. You know, I'm calling timeout. Those guys, Niagara's hooting and hollering. And uh, Belton comes out of the timeout. I kind of challenged them out of the timeout. He drives to the basket and he gets leveled, knocked to the ground. And from that moment on, it was like he almost needed to get knocked on the ground and knocked on his butt in order to realize, like, this is competition. And from that moment on, we stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with those guys for the rest of the scrimmage. And it was – that was kind of Belton's way, right? He, he just, you know, sometimes, you know, would, would kind of be at his own pace and then, boom, in the middle of a practice, a play would happen, a drill would happen, something would get him um, energized or intensified, and, and all of a sudden – you know, the, 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 the building would be on fire um, because he would be flying around making plays, you know, letting guys know about it. And, and with some of the other competitive guys we had, it just fueled, you know, great practice settings. Um, but I thought, you know, as a coach, it was always such a great luxury to have because you could look at him and you could, you know, you could tell him, hey, we really need you here. And, and he, would, he would understand that. He would understand kind of how to get himself to that next level. Um, and he could do it in the blink of an eye. And so, you know, that was something that really saved us a number of times where maybe other guys weren't as engaged or 
uh, as locked in and, and you could challenge him and, and he would really rise to the occasion. So that season, you fall in the semis to a, like a rising mount team uh, with Jamie and you need to refocus. You were the regular season champs. You need to refocus for the NIT. That probably was not a problem when you saw who your opponent's going to be as far as focusing them. What went through your mind when you and the players found out that you'd be playing that game at the Sewell Center? Well, two things. I, I would say, you know, that, that team um, that Jamie had was a really good team. Rashad Wack uh, was on that team. You know, they, they had, you know, two or three, uh, you know, 1,000-point scorers that were on that team. And uh, Sam Prescott, I believe, was on that team. And, you know, I, I was – Norfleet, I, I was surprised that they came in fifth place. Um, and, and, you know, I thought that they were really, really good all year long, one of the harder teams we had, we had faced all season. Um, and knew how dangerous they were coming into that game. And, again, we weren't good. We, we weren't good in that game. And, again, the dejection that you feel when you don't reach that ultimate goal, you know, Velton, Russell, those guys being seniors, you know, made it really tough. Um, and then we, you know, my thing was, like, let's get back to work. Let's get back to practice. And they were some of the worst practices we had because, you know, I knew we were going to the NIT. Guys weren't really trying to feel practicing at that point in the year. And I was so angry that we hadn't, you know, played better that, you know, it was, there was a lot of head bumping going on. And uh, as we, as we got to that NIT selection show, I got a text earlier that day from Jim Duzik, our media relations director and said that um, ESPNU wants you to come on the selection show. And I couldn't figure out why they would want me to do that. So of course, at that point in time, I went to Twitter and started trying to figure out what was what and, you know, read that, you know, Kentucky's not going to be able to host an NIT game because of first and second round NCAA tournament action at Rupp Arena. I, I replied to dudes, you said, I said, you think we're playing Kentucky? You know, we have no idea what's going on. I get on the phone with uh, ESPNU at about 8.39, maybe quarter to nine. I say to the producer, are you going to tell me that we're playing Kentucky here in about five minutes? He said, well, we're going to have to wait five minutes to find out. Joe Gallo, who was my assistant at the time, now a uh, head coach of Merrimack uh, is watching the selection show with my wife because he didn't have cable in his house and didn't have ESPNU. So he came over to watch the show. Him and my wife were upstairs watching the show. I'm downstairs on the phone and they announced that we're playing Kentucky. And as I'm on the phone, I mean, it, it's ringing off my head. I mean, the text messages, the calls, the emails, it was a two hours of nonstop, you know, incoming messages. Uh, including emails from Big Blue Nation saying what a joke it is that we're playing at Robert Morris and you guys stink. And, you know, it was like it was it was something like I've never experienced before. Uh, when I got to work on that Monday, there was a line of tickets. There were a lot of pe people lined up for tickets. You know, smartly enough, Robert Morris decided we're not going to sell any tickets online. We didn't want Kentucky fans coming and scooping all the tickets up. And so there were people I, I pulled in the parking lot at 8 a.m. There was a 200 person line to buy tickets. People started calling all over campus. Uh, we had, you know, English professors sending me emails saying, somebody just called me about buying tickets. They said they were from Kentucky. You know, can you, can you direct them? You know, and I wasn't replying to any of those emails. It was, it was you know, the campus was, 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 uh, was crazed. And, um, you know, watching that Kentucky team, knowing our team, I thought that we, we had a chance. You know, that earlier that year, we had gone to Xavier. We had lost by a point at Xavier. We had gone down to Arkansas. We were down three with 40 seconds to go. 
uh, lost an offensive rebound and had to foul. So we had been close. We had, we had been in some of those games and, you know, that group had so much experience. Uh, they had also begged for somebody to come play us at our place of a high major nature. You know, that was always there. You know, if we could ever get one of these people to come play us at Sewell Center, we, we can beat them. And uh, now we had our chance. And so, you know, as we prepared that game and as we got ready for that game, you know, I think our guys truly believed that they would have an opportunity to win the game. And, you know, we, we came out for warm-ups at 5.30 and the place was absolutely packed. Uh, we jumped on them 10 nothing, and then just tried to hold on as best we could from there. So let's talk. I mean, that game will be part of your time capsule as much for the atmosphere as it was for the win. As you said, you know, a couple hours before the game, it was, it was crazy. One of the things I noticed about you, you're a little different than other coaches. Most coaches like to lock themselves in the locker room before the game. You're always milling about. You're talking to people. Um, I remember you before that game and you were standing in the end zone and you were surrounded by fans would come up to talk to you, you know, people from the school and you're just kind of taking in the atmosphere. Um, what are your memories from like the buildup that last hour or so before you get to tip? Uh, I mean, there's, there's a ton of them, right. And I mean, some of them are just you know, burned in your brain and, you're right. I, I hate being in the locker room. I, I struggle to be in the locker room before the game by myself. I just, you know, too many things are going through my mind. And it's, um, it's nice to be able to come out, watch your team warm up, watch the opposing team warm up, get a real feel for, you know, what your body language looks like. And, you know, is there energy and, and some juice on the court as guys are warming up? And there was certainly no issue with juice uh, to the point where I had to tell my staff to bring the guys back in. Um, you know, usually if it's a seven o'clock game, you know, we hit the court at, uh, five 45 to stretch an hour and 15 minutes before. I mean, our whole team was out there at five 30 working. I'm like, this is not good. Like this is too much time to warm up. This is, you know, and, and our student section was full at that time as well. And so, you know, this is just, so I had to actually bring the guys in off the court just to get them in the locker room, try and get them to relax a little bit. Uh, try and get them to cool down, take a little bit of a break, because I thought they were going, you know, too hard in, in, in the warm-up piece. And, um, you know, I, I did kind of take some time to myself as, you know, we were going to let the guys back out of the locker room just to kind of sit there and observe you know, how much how much fun it was, how cool it was, how, how neat it was to see all these people starting to file in and, you know, be there for a Robert Morris game. And, you know, it felt like as the game went on, more and more people just seemed to continue to trickle in, you know, to the building. Um, you know, I, I had to go address the fans about throwing stuff on the court. You know, that was a first time for me. Uh, of course, in, in, you know, the biggest game in school history, you know, you're sitting there telling fans not to throw stuff on the court. Meanwhile, inside, I'm saying, this is great. We have <laughs> throwing things on the court. Um, you know, so it's, it's an amazing thing about how you, you, you kind of just deal with it. I remember late in the game, I went to try and get some water from the water cooler, and there was like four guys just leaning on the water cooler watching the game like it was a summer league game in a park. And I was like, yo, guys, can you just step back for a minute while I get some water? Oh, coach, no problem, no problem. So, you know, some of the things that could probably only happen if you have a game like that in the Sewell Center. Um, but an incredible memory for our, for our players, for our university, you know, something that's still talked about, something that people still know us as. You know, as I look back through all of our years, when, we, when I got there in April of 2007, we made a lot of phone calls that no one returned. And then in 2010, after the Villanova game, we started to get some – Hey, coach, I saw that Villanova game. Hey, yeah, I know who you guys are. You guys have been in back-to-back -back NCAA tournaments. And then, you know, fast forward three years when we beat Kentucky, you know, that really became a really great point of, 
of conversation. And uh, it was funny that year we went to Atlanta for the final four. Louisville was the national champion and obviously hated rivals of, of Kentucky and anywhere myself or my staff went in Robert Morris gear, Louisville fans were grabbing us and saying, Hey, my brother-in-law is a Kentucky fan. Can you come take a picture with me? I really want to, you know, I want to bust his chops. So uh, there was, there was a lot of fun with that game. And um, you know, it's something seven years later that people still re reference. All right. Last question about the game. I want to go down to the, to, to the play at the end. So you have Velton dribble down into the corner and call timeout. Uh, Jimmy Dykes on the broadcast says, this is shocking to me, or that is shocking to me. Um, you run that really cool play where Russell comes around uh, McFadden screen, the Belton hits him and winds up back in Mike's hands and he gets fouled. All right. So I've always wanted to ask you some questions about this. Was this a play you would use before? Or was it something you had practiced and you were waiting for the right moment? Or was that something you just drew up on the spot? Um, so we had used it before in practice. Um, and it was something I had seen watching another game. And it was, it was they, the, the team I was watching didn't run the play that we ran, but they ran a, a certain cut that I thought would be hard to guard. And so, you know, it kind of sparked me thinking about this, this idea. And um, I've always kind of been a proponent, especially in college basketball, that guys are more comfortable taking the ball out underneath the basket than they are on the sideline. You know, obviously in the NBA, everything's a side out. So those guys are really comfortable with side outs, but in college, there's, there's not as many. And I thought that guys are more confident. You could get some more stuff at the rim. You could get some more scoring opportunities if you get it to the baseline. And in the Bryant game that year, that was the regular season championship, basically. Uh, and that was an unbelievable game. Still one of the games our guys talk about as best atmospheres they've ever been a part of. I was trying to get Carvel Anderson to, to drive it to the baseline to call a timeout late in that game. Smartly enough, he just raised up and made a three right in front of our bench that we didn't need the timeout or anything else because he just took care of it. And so now in this situation, as Velton came over half court, I told him to drive it to the baseline to call a timeout. I wanted to get the ball to the baseline. I knew we were going to run that play. Again, we hadn't run in the game, so I didn't know exactly if it was going to work. But through scouting, I thought that it would. And obviously, we executed it really well. You know, Russell made a great cut. Um, Velton made a great pass. And then Mike stayed with the play and was able to, you know, find the rebound. You know, I think if anybody other than Willie Cauley-Stein would have been under the basket, I think Russell would have had an uncontested layup. But when you have a guy that's got a, you know, 7-2 wingspan that can go from one step of the, uh, one side of the lane to the other in one step, he was able to kind of affect the shot. But Mike was smart enough to be able to be there uh, for the offensive rebound and the foul. Thanks for watching part two of our four-part NEC Now podcast with Robert Morris's Andy Tool. Be on the lookout for part three coming soon. But in the meantime, be sure to subscribe to the NEC Overtime Pod on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.